Please be seated and open your Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 14. We're going to be in uh, the end of the chapter this morning, beginning in verse 17. Uh, We'll pray and read that in just a moment. I want to remind you of the setting in the book of Genesis. We have the the story of creation in the first two chapters, the story of the fall in the third chapter, and right there in the third chapter already, the beginning of redemption as God visits Adam and Eve in the garden and pronounces a curse on the serpent and on the earth and on Adam and Eve, uh, a curse that all of us are under because Adam, what he did, he did as our representative. And so his sin and guilt and the curse that falls on him has fallen on us because we are descended from him and belong to him. Uh, Beginning right there in Genesis 3, God announces, he proclaims a rescue mission when he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. And the rest of the, the Bible is telling us about that rescue mission. It's telling us about the salvation that God has promised to accomplish has already accomplished and in fullness will accomplish finally and forever when Christ comes again. And that's the context of everything we read. Uh, It's in that context that we read about Abraham beginning at the end of chapter 11 there in Genesis as God calls him out of the land in which he was born and raised into the promised land. And and Abram has come faithfully into this promised land uh, and his story has begun in chapter 12 God promised to to establish a covenant with him that would result in salvation not only for Abram and for his immediate family, but for all the families of the earth, that promise says. Paul tells us in Galatians that that very verse right there, Genesis 12, 1 through 3, is the gospel, and it was proclaimed to Abraham. Now, Abraham's story continues, and uh, a couple of weeks ago, we read as Abram went and rescued Lot from the kings who had gone to war with Sodom and Gomorrah and defeated Sodom and Gomorrah and taken Lot away captive. Uh, In this morning's text, Abram is returning. He's coming back from being victorious over kings and kingdoms, coming back with Lot, his nephew, and all of Lot's household and belongings, but also all of the belongings of Sodom. And he's going to encounter, in particular this morning, as he returns, two people. Melchizedek, who is the king of a a city named Salem, which later becomes Jerusalem, and the king of Sodom. And what I want you to, to listen for as we read the text in a moment is really two great choices uh, two great uh, uh, opportunities if you will that stand before abram god has promised to bless him and melchizedek who is not only king of salem but the priest of the most high god comes down from the mountain to meet with abram and bless him as god's representative blessing is also held out by the king of sodom the king of a a wicked, notoriously wicked city. And Abraham receives the blessing of God and rejects the attempt to be blessed by the king of Sodom. We understand a great deal about this morning's text from two other passages of Scripture, Psalm 110 and the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 5 through 7. And so we're, we're in this passage this morning, but we can't help but read it with the understanding that we gain from Psalm 110 and Hebrews. So we'll make reference to them as we go. Let me pray 
and we'll read the text this morning. Father, thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you that, that though I stand here today, uh, the one called to preach the word, it is the spirit at work in the reading and preaching of this word that will accomplish your purpose and overcome my own weakness. Father, we thank you that though uh, we sit here as a congregation under the preaching of this word, ourselves fallen, ourselves broken, knowing ourselves to be sinners and in need of salvation, nonetheless, we come clinging to the promise, filled with hope in the knowledge that you have promised to us that your spirit will work through this word to transform us into the image of Christ. And so we pray that you would do this this morning, uh, that it would be for our good, that the kingdom would be built up, and that ultimately you would be glorified. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Hear the reading of God's word, Genesis 14, beginning in verse 17. After his return from the de defeat of Kedorla Omer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is, the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I've made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eschol, and Mamre take their share. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This morning, we're going to, again, taking our cue from the author of Hebrews, consider Christ our righteous King of peace. Christ, our righteous King of peace. We're going to consider Christ, our great high priest. Christ, our great high priest. And finally, Christ, our rich blessing. Christ, our rich blessing. First, Christ, our righteous King of peace. Christ is the King of righteousness and the King of peace. If you look in the text, you'll see that where Melchizedek is introduced to us in verse 18, he is named Melchizedek and titled King of Salem. As the author of Hebrews points out, Melchizedek, that name means King of Righteousness. And his title, King of Salem, means King of Peace. You're probably more familiar with the word Shalom. Uh, these are, are the same word here, Salem, Peace. He is the King of Righteousness and the King of Peace. The author of Hebrews points out that both of these things are true as he instructs us that Melchizedek is a type of Christ. And what we mean by type is a prefiguring, that when we look at Melchizedek in the Old Testament, though this is history, uh, though th these are true events, and Melchizedek is a real person, uh, that, that in this history, God is superintending. God is at work orchestrating these things in order in the person of Melchizedek to show us Jesus Christ. And though Christ has since come, and we have all of the revelation of Christ in the Gospels and in the New Testament Nonetheless, we have this rich history in the Old Testament by which we are able to come to a, a greater understanding or, or perhaps a greater appreciation of the truth that Christ is our King and as such the King of righteousness 
and the King of Peace. It's no accident that these attributes of Christ's ministry are tied to His office of King. We talk about this often and we cover it in the Catechism on Sunday nights and as often as we discuss the Catechism together. Christ has three offices in Scripture. There are three offices, particularly in the Old Testament, that are meant to point us to Christ and His work, His offices of prophet, priest, and king. And here, in this passage, we see two of these offices, king and priest. Christ is the king of righteousness. That righteousness is, it's again, not by accident that it's tied to His office of king. Why do we say this? It's because the king is the one who establishes the law. In a true kingdom... With a true king, the law is established by the king who is sovereign. And therefore, it's the king who determines what is and is not righteous. Who is and is not righteous. It's no accident that this is, is tied to his office of king. Righteousness is a function of the law. And the king is the lawgiver and the judge and the one who establishes justice. There's no one more fit to establish us as righteous than the king himself, who is the one who established the law. If the king establishes us as righteous, then who can argue with the king? Who can bring a case against those that the king has said are righteous? How could it possibly be that the king would be wrong? Of course, it's impossible for the king, who is the very definition of righteousness, to be wrong when he declares someone to be righteous. What do I mean by declare to be righteous or to establish us as righteous? I mean that God requires perfect righteousness in order for us to stand in His presence, to be granted eternal life with Him. We're already sinners, already under judgment. And it's impossible for us to make ourselves righteous. Apart from God being merciful and gracious, there's no hope for us. We, we know ourselves well enough to be sinners. And all of the, the beauty and the joy, all of the, 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 that ought to be celebrated about the truth that we see here right now, it, the, the, the value of it, if you will, your ability to rejoice in it, to find in it the rest that is held out to us, begins in the recognition of our sin. And, and that, that recognition itself may begin in the, the head knowledge, in hearing this and assenting to it, saying, yes, yes, I, I get it, I hear that, that makes sense, we're all sinners. But listen, if we are going to join our voices together with the psalmist, with David in Psalm 6, as we did this morning. Listen to how David describes his experience of sin, his knowledge that he is a sinner. He says, my bones melt within me. Listen, if that's what you know about yourself, if you genuinely understand in your heart that you are a sinner, the news that God has come and removed that sin and established you as righteous, the king who determines what righteous is, who is himself the very definition of righteousness, when that king says to you, I am your righteousness. Ah, oh, the relief. The rest. 
Jesus Christ came and lived a perfectly righteous life. But more than that, he did so as our representative. I said, so, said earlier that, that Adam was our representative, and he failed, and in so failing, he brought all of us into sin and guilt and death. But thanks be to God that Jesus Christ has come, has lived a perfectly righteous life, and done so on our behalf. Christ did this as our representative in our place, and what Christ did is credited to us. His righteousness is given to us in place of our sin and our guilt. This is what it means that He is the King of righteousness. And listen, it's not just righteousness, but it's righteousness established by the King on our behalf, given to us. There is a, 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 sol, a, a solidity to this truth. There is an unshakable character in the righteousness of Christ that is given to us. So that when we go out of this place this morning, and we, we came in here and we said, yes, I'm a sinner, and we may have even deeply felt our sin, but we hear the glorious news that righteousness has been credited to us by Christ, and it is not a weak righteousness, it is not an incomplete or imperfect righteousness. It is an absolute righteousness that cannot be taken from us so that as we go out from this place back into the world and encounter temptation and sin in our thoughts and in our speech and in our actions through the things that we do that we shouldn't and the things that we don't do that we should and we, we experience day in and day out the reality that we are sinners and do not deserve this and we say to ourselves, he may have done this, but he couldn't have done it for me. The unshakable, eternal, infinite righteousness of Christ for us remains. It was never rooted in your deserving it. Never rooted in your little bit that you added to it in order to make it complete. But while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. What joy is ours in the truth of this righteousness. He is the King of peace. Peace being a function of being in right standing with the King. If we're lawbreakers, there can be no peace between us and God, our King. Not unless somebody does away with our law-breaking, and Christ does this as well. And He does it as our King. He's not only become our righteousness, but He has put away our sin done away with our guilt so that He is responsible to execute perfect justice. This is a problem. He's, he's responsible to execute perfect justice, and there's only one way that He can dispose of our sin and guilt without destroying us, and that is He must submit Himself to be destroyed in our place. And this is what Christ has done. Do you remember... I go back and read the Gospels, especially the, the, the last 24 hours of Christ's life from His arrest until the, the crucifixion is done. Pay attention to how much language there is in those, those passages, all of the Gospels, with respect to His office of King. Christ goes to the cross not merely as a man, but He goes to the cross as our King, establishing peace for us. Pilate says, are you a king? And Jesus does not deny it. 
He's crucified with a sign hung over his head, king of the Jews. He's mocked with a crown of thorns meant to represent his claim to be a king. Christ, our king, submitted to death for us, for our sake, to put away our sin and guilt, and in so doing, he has purchased peace for us. Uh, listen to, to Ephesians chapter 2, 13 through 18. Paul says this, he says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and broken down the wall, broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and listen to this, might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both, that is Jew and Gentile, have access in one spirit to the Father. Do you hear how Paul here understands the work of Christ in, in the shedding of his blood as establishing peace between us and God? Jesus Christ is the King of peace. We now have perfect peace with God because of what Christ has done. He does that by removing the sin that stands between us and God, taking that upon himself, taking it to the cross, nailing it to the cross. Jesus Christ is our King of peace. We have righteous standing before God, the only kind of standing that anyone can have because Christ is our righteousness. We have peace in this life, even as we anticipate the perfect peace of eternity, because Christ has destroyed the enmity between us and God and all other people and circumstances that would take our peace from us are weak and temporary in the face of God and eternity. The quality of this righteous standing and of this peace is unbreakable. Perfect righteousness, eternal peace. Brothers and sisters, this is your king. See how he loves us. Christ, this morning, second, is our great high priest. We have in this one person, Melchizedek, a, a king and a priest. Look again at the text. It says that Melchizedek was priest of the Most High God. And then as such a priest, he blesses Abram according to God. Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. I think that language, possessor of heaven and earth, it's easy to see in it a sort of liturgical quality, a sort of, of title uh, that belongs to God and is used often of God, but in our context in particular, what a choice of titles. It's this God, this most high God, who is the possessor of heaven and earth, who gives blessing to Abram, in contrast to the king of Sodom who may seem to be able to make Abram exceedingly wealthy, but who doesn't even really have what he thinks he have, has. Isn't it interesting that Abram is actually in a position to keep it, whether the king of Sodom would or not, right? It sounds very big of the king of Sodom to say, and look, just, just keep all the stuff. Just payment for what you did. It's so much in Abram's own control right now that he's already given 10% of it to Melchizedek. It's not even Sodom's to give. And in contrast to the God who is the possessor of heaven 
and earth. There's not much at all that can be said about the offer. Christ is our great high priest. We see that Melchizedek was such a priest, and we're told in Psalm 110, God says, the Father says to the Son in Psalm 110, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And it's this morning's passage in Psalm 110 that the author of Hebrews is going to to pick up on in order to unpack the identity of Melchizedek, who it is that Melchizedek is intended to point us towards. Christ is a great high priest after the order of Melchizedek, not after the order of Aaron, not according to the Mosaic Covenant, but something greater. Why? Why do we say that the priesthood of Melchizedek, and therefore the priesthood of Christ, is greater than the priesthood of Aaron? The author of Hebrews helps us with this. The answer is because it has no end. Because God in Christ is himself our high priest. We don't have any priesthood now other than the the priesthood of Christ. Uh, Pastor Nathan and I are not priests. Uh, We're just under-shepherds. Uh, We are not your priest. You have one priest, and one priest alone, Jesus Christ. It's important for us then to consider a high priest. We we don't live in a, a cultural context where we know of a high priest and understand the role of a high priest as well as they would have in the Old Testament. So what does this mean here? Westminster Shorter Catechism 25 asks, How does Christ execute the office of a priest? Christ executes the office of a priest in his once offering up of himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God and in making continual intercession for us. That's worth studying. Uh, if, you, if you don't have a copy of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, it's free online. You can go out there and Google it. It's easy to find. Question 25. I'd encourage you this afternoon when you go home to meditate on this shorter catechism, question 25, as it expresses to us what it means that Christ is our high priest. And I think the author of Hebrews says it best in chapter 7. Listen to how he unpacks for us the, the, not only what the priest does, but how Christ's priesthood, being eternal, is greater than the priesthood of Aaron. The former priests, he's talking about in, in the Law of Moses in the Old Testament, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, that is Christ, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, that's Psalm 110, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Christ is our great high priest who saves us. And I want to draw particular attention to the middle there where he says, save to the uttermost, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Saves to the uttermost. 
There is nothing in the salvation that belongs to us in God that is deficient in any respect. It is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable because the God who has promised it and affected it is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. Our salvation is ours according to our great high priest who will never die and who has perfectly accomplished all that is necessary for our salvation. And listen, because he never dies, he always lives to make intercession for us. Christ is our great high priest, the only priest we have, the only priest we will ever have, and thanks be to God, the only priest that we will ever need. He saves us to the uttermost and always lives to make intercession for us. What joy is ours in this truth? Joy because we leave this room this morning, we go back out again into a world that is not yet made perfect, and we ourselves are in that world not yet made perfect. We struggle, we wrestle, we fight against sin, we fail. We need this joy, the peace, the rest that is held out to us in this truth that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our eternal great high priest, always lives to make intercession for us. Finally this morning, Christ our rich blessing. Uh, Melchizedek comes down from Salem and he blesses Abram. He, notice he brings bread and wine. He blesses Abram by God Most High. All of this consistent with the promise that God has made to Abram in Genesis 12. He gives Jesus Christ here, as we, we consider Melchizedek, Jesus Christ also comes down from His Father in heaven. He gives us the bread and wine of His body and blood. Salvation for us. He speaks a word of blessing over us. I, I can't help but think of Matthew 5, the Beatitudes, where Christ expresses the blessings that belong to those who are His. I can't help but think of that, that, in, that instant in the Gospels where the children were, were coming to Christ and the disciples were, were shooing the children away and Christ was picking up these covenant children and placing them on His knee. And the text says He blessed them. Christ is our rich blessing. He speaks a word of blessing over us, and He is our blessing. In Him and by Him, we are blessed. The blessing of life and fellowship with the triune God is ours because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. I want to talk to the children for just a second, but adults, don't ever for a moment think that this is not for you as well that when I talk to the children, I'm just doing a better job of communicating clearly to you. But little ones, I want you to look at me for a second. I don't know if you've ever experienced this where one or maybe both of your parents have gone on a trip and they've been gone for days or maybe even a whole week or maybe even two weeks. And there's probably a chance that they're bringing a gift back when they come home. There's some, something that's going to be in the suitcase and you're excited about that gift, 
but you're probably more excited about your mom or your dad coming home, aren't you? Now, this is what's true for us as Christians. God gives us so many gifts. There's so many ways that God is good to us. But listen, we can, we can look forward to those gifts. We can celebrate those gifts and give thanks to God for those gifts. But even greater than the gifts is the one who gives them. Our joy, when that mom or that dad comes home again, is the greatest joy, greater even than the gift they bring. This is Jesus Christ. This is what I want you to understand. Christ himself is what is promised to us. Life, fellowship with him. We've talked about this before, haven't we, in the garden? This is what Adam and Eve had. God walked with them. They were in fellowship with God, and that fellowship was life. And that's what they lost. It, they didn't lose what I, I tended to think of growing up in the church, uh, a really comfortable setting, easy food, no real work responsibilities. Everything just came easy to them. It was a beautiful place, life was good, and there was no indication that they would ever die. They did lose all those things, and I'm sure they missed them. But what was truly lost was the life-giving fellowship they had with their Creator. That fellowship is ours in Jesus Christ. He is our blessing. We are to prefer Christ and His blessing to anything that the world has to offer. And that's where we'll close this morning, is by drawing your attention to the text. Once again, Melchizedek comes down. He pronounces blessing over Abram, giving him bread and wine. And we see this turn here in verse 21. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the person, but take the goods for yourself. And Abram sees right through the offer. Abram stands between Melchizedek and the king of Sodom. Melchizedek, who has the blessing of God, the king of Sodom, who has only the blessing that a, a temporary world can hold out. And Abram sees the distinction. He trusts in the promises of God. And he says to the king of Sodom, I've lifted my hand to the Lord, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. Notice he repeats this, this reality of the character and the, the, the truth about God. You, you, king of Sodom, who according to the world standards seem to have profound wealth, wealth that I currently hold in my possession, and could keep whether you would let me keep it or not, and even in your offer to me to let me have it, it is worthless in the face of the blessing that is held out to me by the God who possesses heaven and earth. He swore to God, I will not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. And there's the trap shutting. You see, the world holds out so many promises to us if we would only live the way the world calls us to live. If we would only believe what the world would have us believe, it holds out to us apparent blessing. It holds out to us apparent promise. But there is a trap in that promise, and that's slavery. 
if we would turn away from the promises of God and turn toward the promises of the world, we will have at best a temporal joy. It's a joy that is fleeting. It's a joy that exists in contrast, contrary to God who has promised to bless us. And there's a slavery in it. The world would own us if we were to give in, if we were to reject the promises of God in favor of the promises of the world. Abram says, you will not say when this is all said and done, I have made Abram rich. There's a, there's a catch there. Because if he can say, I have made Abram rich, then Abram owes him something. He can now twist and turn Abram to his own will. Because Abram is in his debt. Abram says, you are not going to own me. And we need to say the exact same thing to the world. It's not that the king of Sodom didn't have riches to give. But it's that in the face of the promises of God, those riches were worthless. And in fact, it turns out dangerous. In so many ways in today's text, and its meaning for us, it's, it's quite clear. We've got a priest king in Jesus Christ who at the cost of his own life and death has purchased for us, his people, eternal life, righteousness, and peace by means of His promise to us, He holds out to us life forever with Him and all the blessings that come with that. The world will try to offer better promises, but it cannot. Don't be tempted. Don't be lured away by these false promises. There's nothing in them but slavery and death. Thanks be to God, though, that what He has given us is so much greater. And He says in His Word and reminds us as often as we come to the Word, as often as we gather together in worship, reminds us that His blessings are infinite, that they are greater, that in them is freedom, and that we do not need the supposed blessings of the world. Ah, this is our joy, brothers and sisters. This is our peace. Jesus Christ belongs to us. Let's pray.